Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that the average person's skin will weigh about twice as much as their brain does. Unless, of course, you have a lot of extra skin like I did when I weighed 300 pounds. Fortunately, thanks to whole body vibration and the Bulletproof diet and lots of hydrolyzed collagen, I don't have any extra skin, so I'm pretty sure my skin weighs about twice as much as my brain. What about you? What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Dr. Tom O'Brien is joining us for the podcast today. Tom is an internationally recognized speaker and a workshop leader specializing in gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. I'm really stoked because I'm one of the speakers at Tom's Gluten-Free Summit that's coming up here in November. It's going to be really incredible. As you know, on the Bulletproof Diet, gluten is just forbidden because it reduces human performance so much. So we're going to get a chance to talk about that. But first, a little bit more about Tom. He's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes for chronic disease and metabolic disorders. 
and he uses functional medicine. You've heard me talk about functional medicine a lot here as opposed to Western medicine approaches, which are a little bit more mechanistic. In fact, Tom even holds teaching faculty positions with the Institute for Functional Medicine and the National University of Health Sciences. In addition, Tom and I have spent some really high quality time together over the past few months, uh, more than uh, more than a week, and I've really gotten to know him well and really trust his opinion both as a as a healer uh, and as a researcher. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave, and thank you for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Let's uh, let's talk about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. Why do you care so much about these things? Oh man, where do you start? Most everyone has heard some reference to this and that uh, it seems to be a problem for a friend or a family member. And some people are saying it's a fad, that people are going on the diet and losing weight, that some movie stars are doing it or some tennis pros. It's a fad, it's going to fade. This is not gonna fade. There are over 19,000 articles in the medical literature on gluten sensitivity and its impact throughout the body. 19,000 different research teams have looked at this and have said, hey, this is a problem with um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. This may be a problem with Alzheimer's. This may be a problem with Parkinson's. This may be a problem with intestinal permeability. This may be a problem with liver cancer. And the articles go on and on and on that not everyone has this. But what the articles are starting to say is somewhere between three and six out of 10 people who go to a doctor for any reason, when they're checked, if they're checked properly, they have elevated antibodies to one of the proteins of gluten, meaning that their immune system is saying, this is a problem. So it doesn't matter if you have headaches or seizures or attention deficit. It doesn't matter what the symptoms are. If the protocols you're currently doing are not getting the ideal results you want, you just want to think about maybe a gluten sensitivity is contributing to this. So 19,000 people, obviously they all had a vested interest. So, so this is a scam, right? <laughs> well, you know, there, <laughs> there's no money. I know. There, there is no money in researching gluten sensitivity. There is no drug. There is no profit margin for all of these different research groups. They're yeah. just saying, hey, this is a problem. For some people, yeah. this is a problem. That it, you totally got right to the heart of my question really quickly there. Um, no one's getting rich off telling you to eat no gluten. Right. Uh, um, I would say maybe some of the, the big packaged food companies are starting to make gluten-free products that are worse than gluten-containing products. Maybe they're making some money by upcharging for another crap food. But uh, even then, those products are probably less harmful than, than gluten on the gut. So, well, you know, there, there are people who say gluten-free diets are bad for you if you're not a celiac. And gluten-free diets are not bad for you. Bad gluten-free diets are bad for you. That's so, a huge point, and God, well put. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, you go to Starbucks once a week. Pretty soon you'll go to Bulletproof somewhere <laughs> once a week, right? And, and you buy, you stop every day, but you, every once in a while you get a blueberry muffin. Well, now you're gluten-sensitive. Oh, I can't have my muffins anymore. Well, now you're going to find gluten-free blueberry muffins. And you think, oh, I can eat that. It's healthy for me. It's gluten-free. It's not healthy for you. It's just not as bad for you as a gluten-containing muffin. I mean, there's no reason why you can't have a blueberry muffin once in a while, but people think, oh, it's healthy for me. It's gluten-free. I can have one. As a matter of fact, I can have two. 
And that's how people gain weight on a gluten-free diet is eating the gluten-free pre-packaged or pre-prepared products trying to substitute for the amount of sugar or the bad fats they were getting in their diet beforehand. So the idea that diets are not necessarily good or bad as in binary zero or one, but that diets are on a spectrum there where at least you can eliminate gluten, but you can still eat like crap. Like my favorite gluten-free diet is, you know, Diet Coke, uh, (laughs) maybe some Pepsi. And those are gluten-free products. Let's be really clear. Tequila uh, and corn chips. I mean, it's a full gluten-free diet. It's got to be healthy, right? Well, you know, Dave, on your diet, I I would join you with the tequila. (laughs) I'd be all right with that one. If it's good tequila. (laughs) There you go. But it's, it's one of those things where, what oh and ice cream you could throw some of that in there too why not there's no gluten in most ice cream <laughs> right in most in most ice cream cookie there, dough there is, exceptions <laughs> right there there are gluten in some ice creams um, gluten is used as a filler in many different products and you'd never imagine it. it's in applesauce it's in ketchup yep uh, and you you would never think and that's why it's so important that a person uh, really look at this and get accurate information work with a nutritionist or a diet, registered dietitian or a practitioner who's well-trained in this. We have a whole training program for healthcare practitioners on this so that they start saying accurate information about it. In, in fact, Tom, when you, when you go to the doctor and you ask about gluten, you're going to hear one thing depending on whether it's a functional medicine specialist or a nutritionist or in it or kind of a Western medicine thing. And it's really confusing for people because you know, your, your five minutes per visit GP at the clinic down the road is likely to say the opposite of what you're saying? That's exactly right. That their, their training on this is that many of them, not all of them, but many of them have reluctantly embraced that, yeah, there might be a problem. You should probably cut it down a little bit or cut it down a lot. Well, if you know the science, you can't be a little pregnant. You can't, you can't have a little gluten. If you have an immune reaction to gluten, the mechanism by which the immune reaction works is just like a vaccine. You get a shot of a vaccination for measles. They give you the bug measles. Your brain says, what's this? This is not good for me. And in your immune system, you have generals, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps generals sitting around with nothing to do. And the brain says, you general, you now are general measles. Take care of this. General measles builds an assembly line. The assembly line starts producing soldiers called antibodies. The antibodies are trained as assassins to go after just measles. And they're going all through the bloodstream, firing these chemical bullets called cytokines, looking for measles. General measles is watching this. When all the measles bugged from the vaccination is gone, general measles turns off the assembly line. You don't need these soldiers right now. You shouldn't have measles antibodies in your bloodstream unless you were exposed. You shouldn't have them. But general measles is vigilant the rest of his life. If you're ever exposed to measles again, General measles just has to flip the switch. And within a couple of days, all the antibodies are back, as opposed to having to build the assembly line that takes months to do. That's why if you go to Africa to visit, you need shots months ahead of time for dengue fever and yellow fever and all that. But if you go back 10 years later, you just need a booster shot two weeks before you go. You just have to wake it up again. That general in the immune system is called a memory B cell. Never goes away. If you have an immune reaction to gluten, you have memory B cells to gluten. They never go away. 
So you can't have a little gluten. You can't be a little pregnant because your immune system turns on. And then for months, three to six months, one minute exposure, a couple of crumbs, one minute exposure, and you've got antibodies for three to six months that are attacking your brain or your joints or your kidney or your liver, wherever your genetic weak link is as to where gluten is going to mess you up. That's, uh, that's an incredibly picturesque view of it. There's another one. So many people, even some clients of Bulletproof Fulvers, they'll say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gluten-free at least 90% of the time. Right. And, and I, I'm like, you know, you remind me of my friend. Um, she, she's a heroin addict. And, and she's, she's just using a little heroin, right? <laughs> like, it, it, this is one of those things that is pretty binary. If you keep stimulating that part of your body, not only are you going to get the negative immune inflammatory effects, you're going to get the cravings, right? Yes. Like the addictive side of it. Okay, so how does the addictive side of gluten work versus the destructive inflammatory side of it work? The problem with gluten is that no human can digest it. It's impossible to digest the gluten proteins that are in wheat, barley, and rye. Alessio Fasano, Dr. Fasano from Harvard, Mass General Hospital, he's a director of pediatric gastroenterology. He is very clear about this in his presentations. No human can digest this. The way he says it is that if you take the hydrochloric acid in the human stomach and you put it in a little vial, you put your finger in the vial, it eats your finger to the bone in one minute. One minute. You put some gluten in that vial, it no digests the gluten. <laughs> He's got this Italian accent. It's very cute how he says it, but it doesn't digest the gluten. When you eat gluten, it is not digestible. It's supposed to be breaking, broken down into very small molecules called individual amino acids or two or three together, a dipeptide or a tripeptide, and that gets absorbed very easily into the bloodstream through the intestines. But you can't break it down into dipeptides or um, tripeptides. It, there's uh, no protease. I mean, hydrochloric acid won't do it. But it won't do it. No human, no human protein digestive enzyme made by the pancreas or the liver is capable of breaking down gluten. You're, say, you're is, saying this is a definitive fact, Doctor Tom O'Brien, who spent 30 years doing this. Everyone listening to this? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. The closest enzyme is called DPP4. And it can break down partially, but no enzyme produced in the human digestive tract can break this down. It's just the science. Just read the papers. Okay. It's, so, you know, so I'm just going to poop it out anyway. Who cares if I break it down? Yeah, well, well, here's the point. Yeah. If you think of proteins, proteins are made up of hundreds of amino acids. And digestion, think of protein like a brick wall. Digestion is getting the mortar off the bricks. Each individual brick is the amino acid, and that gets absorbed into your bloodstream. So you have to get the mortar off the bricks and take the brick off. It goes into the bloodstream. Then your body uses it to make muscle or whatever it's going to do with it. But with gluten, you can't get the mortar off the bricks. So it's like someone took a sledgehammer and broke the wall into a bunch of pieces. There was a 17-brick clump, a 33-brick clump, an 11-brick clump. One of those clumps that occurs in about, well, that the immune system reacts to in about one third of the people that have an immune reaction to gluten, so that's a pretty high percentage of them, is called gluteomorphins. It's a, it's a peptide of gluten, of partially digested gluten. Gluteomorphins are called gluteomorphins because they bind to the opiate receptor sites in the brain, like morphine. 
If you have these gluteomorphins traveling in your bloodstream, these clumps of brick that's called gluteomorphins, and they bind to the opiate receptors in the brain, what happens there? It stimulates the opiate receptor producing endorphins, the hormones that, the feel good hormones in life. It's great. You feel good. It's not a problem. But you have toast for breakfast. You stimulate those opiate receptors. You have sandwich for lunch. You stimulate those receptors. Pasta for dinner. Every day, every day, every day, every day. And what happens is that you downregulate the receptor, which means it stops working. That is exactly the mechanism in the development of the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Because from birth, we're eating so much sugar, we downregulate the insulin receptor, so insulin doesn't work anymore, or it works less efficiently than it should. The same thing happens with the gluteomorphin peptides from partially digested gluten when they hit on the opiate receptors. You downregulate the opiate receptors in the brain. That's why it's associated with attention deficit and autism and depression and anxiety, because people don't have the the juice of life. They can't get the endorphins working or being received to feel good about life. And so they crave that food. So even if you eat wheat, even things like a runner's high, which is another way of getting opiates, isn't going to give you the same satisfaction. Well, it won't give you the same degree of satisfaction. You need to produce more. You need to run harder or run a little longer to get that same end result feeling because your opiate receptors are being downregulated by the gluten by the gluteomorphins. So if opiate receptors are part of what allow us to feel happiness and life satisfaction, eating gluten makes it harder to feel happiness and life satisfaction. I'm, I'm just paraphrasing what you're saying there, but do you, do you agree? That is why depression is the number one cognitive complaint in celiac disease. So, so this is kind of a side note, but a huge amount of dog food, the protein they put in there is gluten, and they have dogs on Prozac. What do you think? <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a connection there personally, but I, I noticed mood stability, uh, and this is also something uh, Dr. Davis talks about in Wheat Belly, but mood stability in myself, when I went off gluten, it, it was accidental. I was just trying to eat fewer carbs, and so I didn't eat it, and my personality changed over three months. Like It was a huge difference. Like I wanted to kill a lot less people. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Granted, I've, I've, I've moved on, but right. it was at least six months ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's that's actually so very common that people say that they see the world differently. They just feel better. Aside from they sleep better, their energy's up. Their their view of life changes, and if they get some exposure to gluten, many of them crash. And they crash in that their outlook on life changes. They don't feel so good. They're grumpy. They may get a wave of depression. Isn't that kind of similar to what happens with a heroin addict? You know, Dave, it's It's a very similar mechanism because the opiate receptors are so engaged with a large percentage of people that have gluten sensitivity. When I was really experimenting with the early days of the Bulletproof Diet, I was like, all right, I'm going to do that cheat day. And I, I would you know, have bread and you know, crusty sourdough, the best bread ever. I'm only going to eat it once, right? Oh, yeah. And the next day, I'd be like, you know, like, you know I, I need to bring a vein up here so, <laughs> so I, can, 
I could figure it out because I craved. You know, I convinced myself I'm going to have just one piece of bread. It won't hurt me. It didn't hurt me yesterday. It won't hurt me today. And right. pretty soon I was having bread every day. And then I'd catch myself and I'd go off. And I just realized that it is insidious. Yes. What it does. And you described the mechanism there. It's an opiate thing. Yes. And the reason it's insidious is because you don't vomit. You don't feel it right away. It's a subtle behind the scenes dumbing down of it's like a dimmer switch you get i i I call it the dumbed down effect you get dumbed down here's a study on this this was really an interesting study in finland they know that cardiovascular disease number one cause of death so they sent out letters to five thousand families we'd like to follow your children for 30 years to see if we can identify mechanisms that make them vulnerable to developing cardiovascular disease and see if we can prevent it everything's free for you, everything, would you like to do it? After 20 years in this study, 2,456 now young adults were still in the study. Other research, and oh, and every year they drew their blood, they got their grades from school, are you playing any sports, any social activities, any trouble with the law, are your parents healthy? They got as much information as they could to try to see if there were any patterns for those who eventually developed cardiovascular disease. Other researchers heard about this. And by, by the way, when they drew the blood, they freeze the blood. Other researchers heard about it and said, ah, ah, can we have some of the blood? We want to check for silent celiac disease. Now, what's that? That's when people have celiac disease, but they don't have gut symptoms, so they, they don't know. They don't, it might be affecting their brain. It might be affecting their joints. You know, they've got arthritis, but they never associated with wheat. So they said, yeah, sure, you can have some of the blood. They found that in those 2,456 people, there was just over 50 of them that had silent celiac, meaning the blood test showed the immune system was very active. You got a problem with this, but the person didn't know it. So they looked to see what happened to these 50 people over the course of the last 20 years. Where are they in life now? And this is what they found. Those children diagnosed with celiac disease, 23% of them went on to a college or university degree. Those not diagnosed with celiac disease, 54%. It was more than double went on to university or college degree. Those that um, had celiac disease, silent celiac disease, 21, it was either 21 or 22% were being promoted. They were in administrative positions. They're working hard. They're getting promoted in life. Those without, over 48%. And they call, the, the name of the study Silent celiac disease, a cause of underachievement. And if you had said to these people, hey, I noticed that the three buddies you grew up with in high school went on to college, but you didn't. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, you know, I didn't do very well in my SATs, but that's why I'm happy. And maybe he's a salesperson or a tradesman and he has a family, is really happy in life. But what was his potential that he never got to tap? What, because of this dimmer switch just dumbing down the brain, with these antibodies going after the brain. What was the potential? So that's why I call it the dumbed-down switch. That was only 50 out of 2,500 people. That's right. Okay. With with silent celiac. Now, understand that's celiac disease. That means they've got the blood test that shows they've got total bilis atrophy, not gluten sensitivity. Gluten, Gluten sensitivity is, one study shows, 30 times more prevalent than celiac. So are gluten-sensitive people going to have the same declines in performance as their dimmer switch hit? You know, the, the, I always try to answer by the studies. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer you two ways. First, by the studies. The studies on non-celiac gluten sensitivity just started coming out a few years ago. It's finally been recognized. There's not enough information to conclusively say that. We do know, however, that depression is associated with it, fatigue, GI upset, uh, rheumatoid, psoriasis. There are a number of diseases and conditions that now are associated with celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But I can't be as conclusive in the answer to you uh, from a science perspective. Clinically, we see it all the time. In our offices, we see it all the time that when patients go off gluten without, and they didn't have celiac disease, their brains start functioning better. They feel more alive. It's like the lights turn on brighter again. I don't think it's possible to be in the bulletproof state of high performance that I'm, I'm working to lead people towards if you're on gluten, uh, or frankly, if you're on regular opiate drugs either. Um, I fully agree. It, it's, it, this is a really big statement though, but, but we're saying certainly if you have celiac, and likely if you have gluten sensitivity, that you are not going to be capable of living the life that you are capable of if you keep dosing yourself with this stuff. That is exactly right, Dave, that there's a dimmer switch, the dumbed down effect. And people don't know, this guy, you know, those people didn't know that they were dumbed down through high school and didn't do well in their SATs. They didn't know. So, all right, now, so what do we do about this? There's a company I've seen saying, oh, if the gluten, or sorry, if the, the wheat is an ancient species of wheat, then it's okay. Or you should have spelt or kamut or, or oats that contain gluten in and these other things like that. What's your take on the gluten-like compounds and other grains? Are these equally dangerous? Are they less dangerous? Should we just ditch the grains? Like, it's kind of a big ask. As you started to ask the question, I had to have a sip of my Bulletproof coffee to calm down before I, I answer you. I'll get you a Bulletproof coffee cup. We, <laughs> we, we got to get you the new one. Okay, thank you. So gluten's not bad for you. Bad gluten is bad for you. Oh, that, that's what they're saying, right? So there, for, for all of your listeners, there's gluten in rice. There's gluten in corn. There's gluten in a number of grains. It's not gluten. It's the bad family of glutens that are bad for you. Now, there's other reasons why some of those grains would not be great. For example, rice flour has a higher glycemic index than wheat flour. So if you're eating pastries made with rice flour, it alters your blood sugar more aggressively than eating pastries made from wheat flour. Now, this is not talking about the immune response, just blood sugar regulation. So the idea of eating other grains or other grain-based packaged goods and products uh, I personally think we're meant to have a little grain once in a while, especially if you're a high-performance athlete or you're just high-performance. You need a little grain once in a while. You just want the grains that aren't offending you and thus activating your immune system to fight it. And you want the grains in dosages that your body can metabolize well. So the main emphasis of your diet is quality meats and quality vegetables maybe a little bit of fruit once in a while, and a little bit of quality grain. And what are the, the most quality, least immune offensive grains? Brown rice, quinoa, and amaranth, in my experience, are, and this is clinically, I haven't seen any studies that show level of um, uh, immune sensitivity between those grains. I, I haven't seen any studies that show the ones worth it worse than the other. The only ones that I've seen, many studies on, of course, wheat, rye, and barley, 
and on oats, the jury is mixed. For example, when oats grow out of the ground, there's no gluten in them. You buy oats off the shelf, there's gluten in them. And it's cross-contamination. The trucks that hauled the oats from the fields to the manufacturing facility hauled wheat last week. And they don't clean the trucks. Or the assembly line that the oats are going down um, had wheat on it. And they don't clean the assembly lines. So the studies that have looked at commercial oats are shocking as to how much wheat gluten is actually in them. But there are companies that offer gluten-free oats. And so I recommend to our patients, if you want oats or a little oatmeal once in a while, make sure it's gluten-free oats. Now, Mrs. Patient, you can be sensitive to artichokes. You can be sensitive to oats. But oats are not in the category of toxic glutens in general. They're not part of that toxic family of wheat, rye, and barley. It may be a separate immune response you're having. But if you're eating contaminated oats, then you have to fall back into the to the toxic family discussion of wheat, rye, and barley if the oats are contaminated. But if you have non-contaminated oats, you may have a sensitivity to it. You just have to check. If you don't have an immune reaction to oats, you're okay. I, I see a lot of people when they, they go fully bulletproof and then they try oats, they almost universally get like bloating and, and digestive issues from them uh, compared to white rice. But it's interesting, the, the three that you, you talk about the most there are brown rice, not white rice, and I'm assuming whole grain quinoa and whole grain, uh, what was it, an amaranth? Amaranth. So what about all the fiber in the husk and the anti-nutrients in the husk that's irritating to those same villi that have been beaten down by gluten all the time? Like why wouldn't you take off the irritating parts of these grains before consuming them? That's a really good question, Dave, and there's an entire family of discussion about lectins and the offensive nature of lectins and grains. Mm -hmm. Absolutely accurate and valid discussion. So in our practice, we use the biomarker. I always go for biomarkers to see how is this body functioning. So we use the biomarker looking at the indicators for intestinal permeability. And within three to six months, that should be cleaned up. If it's not cleaned up, then we get more strict, say, okay, Mrs. Patient, we're going to do a grain-free diet for a while and see if you're having a lectin sensitivity that's impacting on this. So I'll do it in stages. I try to make it as manageable for the person to begin with. And if we don't get the results, um, certainly they're feeling better. That's obvious. But we want the biomarkers to be back down to normal, that there's no inflammation in the gut at all, because that is the most dangerous phase of gluten sensitivity is when you don't have positive blood work, you don't have any uh, celiac disease with the villus atrophy, the shags wearing down, and all you have is inflammation in your gut. That is the most dangerous phase with double the mortality of celiac disease if you just have the inflammation. But, okay, so you would tell someone don't eat any of those grains while you're healing the gut. And when the gut's fully healed, then you can have some of these grains, like the brown no, rice? or well, it depends on the patient. With most patients, we try to make it as manageable for them as they can. As long as they don't have an inflammatory bowel disease, colitis or Crohn's, we will allow them to do the non-toxic gluten grains. And if they feel good, there's no symptoms, they're improving, everything's going well. In six months, they feel great, doc, I'm back to normal. Say, great, let, let's check the biomarkers now, let's see. 
If there's still inflammation, still indicators of intestinal permeability, then I'll pull all grains. And that's just a clinical decision on my part. There are some doctors who will pull all grains right away. And that's an excellent approach that I have no argument with whatsoever. My concern is full compliance. Uh, yeah, it, I, I see your point exactly now. So a lot of people just aren't going to do it. Um, I, I recommend pulling all grains except for white rice as like the least offensive one, even less offensive than brown. Uh, and recommend sweet potatoes over that. But my assumption is that people who are after you know, the state of high performance, uh, the kind of people who are listening to this, are they want to know how to do it perfectly. And maybe if they're going to degrade from perfect, all right, fine, eat, eat the quinoa or whatever else. But in your case, you're going after people who aren't necessarily bulletproof. And you know, if it's grandma, like, well, grandma's going to have to have some kind of toast. It's, yeah, of course, amaranth toast is better than wheat toast. I, I see your point exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, so the high-performance athletes, the high-performance bulletproof people, they'll do, doc, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. And for them, going grain-free is perfect. And we, we, we really have to counsel them on how to do it well and how to do it properly. But as long as they do, they're great, and they're, they're just flying. They feel marvelous. Uh, but I'm after, I, I want to change the direction our world's going in. Yeah. And the way I do that is by talking about gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. So I want compliance from the masses. Yeah, so you've got to make something workable. And right. replacements for bread are, are a major issue. Yeah. Uh, but here's, here's, a, well, here's a question that may throw a monkey wrench in, into the works. How much of this is coming from the way we treat our grains with yeast? Because Saccharomyces cervicae, uh, the brewers and bakers yeast, has a whole bunch of effects on the gut. It has a whole bunch of effects on the brain separate from gluten. Do you think the studies that we've done are adequately separating toast, which is yeast plus grain, from just grain? No, no. The, the studies are not at adequate. Uh, there are studies on this, and this is really the big picture uh, that perhaps another uh, session here can dive into is the problem with gluten is not that it gives you sore tummies. The problem with gluten sensitivity is that it gives you vulnerability and acceleration in the development of autoimmune diseases. Yeah. And it's the autoimmune diseases. And if you're, for example, if you're making antibodies to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, if you're making those ASCA antibodies elevated, you have a 100% likelihood of developing Crohn's within three years. And those studies are published. It's called wow. predictive, predictive antibodies. There's that's, a whole world. Yeah, I know. That's huge. So you're telling people <laughs> it's not just gluten. No. Uh, gluten can cause Crohn's, but gluten plus yeast really can cause Crohn's. Yes. That's, so what about beer? Yeah. You think? <laughs> Sorry, man. Sorry. <laughs> That's why beer is at that end of the spectrum on the Bulletproof Diet alcohol infographic. Like, it, it, it sucks, but this is what science has shown us. And this is what you can feel if you do the experiments on your own body about actively and religiously avoiding gluten instead of, I, I only ate it twice this week, which doesn't count. Like, you didn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, uh, it's a really long discussion about predictive autoimmunity, uh, but in, and I'm sure we'll do it on another show. Oh, if, yeah. Your grill. Uh, and for your listeners, I'd recommend they read this article first. It's by Natkins from UCLA. It was a cover story, Scientific American, March of 2006. 
called Predictors of Disease. And you go to scientificamerican.com, it's five bucks to download that issue. You read that article, and then you understand the underlying mechanisms of what take you down eventually started 10, 15, 20 years earlier. And you can identify those mechanisms now and address them. And that's, that's the whole world of predictive autoimmunity. That's the problem with gluten sensitivity. So, so Tom, when we were doing the, the 40 years of Zen training, I think over dinner, you told me about this and it just blew my mind. So I will have you back on the show to talk about that specifically because it's it's fascinating stuff. And the fact that you can tell many years before what's going to happen and you can change what you do to your environment and what you put in your body and turn off that thing. This is in all of history has never been possible for humans, at least in my understanding. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And for your female listeners, uh, so many of them have problems with their thyroid, and yet they get thyroid blood tests, and the blood tests are normal. But they've got cold hands and feet. Their boyfriends say their feet are cold at night, or their husbands say you know their feet are cold in bed, right? They can't lose weight even if they don't eat for a few days. Their energy levels are low. All signs of a thyroid that's not quite working up to speed. If you have elevated antibodies to thyroid, especially postpartum, which is very common, you have a 92% likelihood of developing Hashimoto's thyroid disease within seven years. So and I, these, these studies are published. We, we've got these studies now on most autoimmune diseases. I, I had Hashimoto's. It was also postpartum. Okay. I did have Hashimoto's. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, and I, you, know, I, you know, Dave, that sex change operation really worked well. <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually went away, though. I cured my Hashimoto's. Yeah. Uh, I used the C word. Uh-oh. And uh, religious gluten avoidance, like no gluten for years, not a drop. And also, I believe, in fact, I know that there's cross-reactivity between certain species of toxic mold and gluten. And yes. in my case, I have religious avoidance of those too. And if you're getting, if you already have Hashimoto's, reducing everything that pisses it off and, and lets it calm down seems like a good idea. But if you don't want to get Hashimoto's, especially when you're pregnant, I'm thinking better baby book recommendations here, but maybe not eating gluten before and during pregnancy and during the period of nursing is a really strong recommendation. Yeah. What does yeah, that do it, to the baby when the mom eats gluten while making milk? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there was a study that was just published three weeks ago that showed in Sweden they've got socialized medicine. So they've got records on everybody. And apparently at birth, they take some of the fetal blood and they freeze it for all these children, for all births. Uh, and they've got it on file. They went back and they looked at the fetal blood and they found that children with autism, every child with autism had elevated IgG antibodies to gluten at birth. Now, IgG are the antibodies that come from the mother. It's the mother's way of telling the baby, okay, here's some antibodies to cat. Now, you know, we've got cats in the house. Don't worry, they're friendly. This is gonna help you adjust to the cats. But when you get elevated antibodies, mom's passing through an mom has elevated antibodies in this discussion to gluten, one of the toxic proteins in gluten, those elevated antibodies go through to the baby. The baby's born with an elevated immune response. Every one of those children, they, they checked autistic children, every one of them had those elevated antibodies. We don't know. Wow. We don't know if that caused it 
or if that was associated with it. It was just an observation that was just made a couple weeks ago. I believe there is likely some correlation between gluten and autism because anything that causes autoimmune neurological inflammation adds on to the the stack of things that increase the likelihood of autism. When you get a big enough stack, you tip over into that autoimmunity and you get autism or Asperger's or even some of the ADD and ADHD symptoms. So yeah, if you're- Let me give you, uh, let, let me give you another example. If you have celiac disease, this study was on celiac disease, that's when the sensitivity to gluten causes an autoimmune destruction of the shags in the intestines, shag carpeting to absorb your nutrients. The shags wear down and you get berber. So that's celiac disease. For those with celiac disease, 73% of them have a lack of blood flow into their brain. It's called hypoperfusion. 73%, that's three out of four. I heard that too, Tom, so I'm glad you're saying this. And a year on a gluten-free diet, only 7% still had hypoperfusion. And probably it's because of cross-reactivity. But 73%, that's the vast majority of people with the sensitivity to gluten have a lack of blood flow into their brain. Now, what does that mean? Cross your legs for two hours. Don't uncross them. Leave them crossed. Stand up and run. Give your kid toast for breakfast. Send them to school to learn if they have a gluten sensitivity. The result is they don't have enough blood flow into the brain. And the reason I talked about that is because when they look at spec studies in autistic children, consistently the group of autistic children that have the same pattern behavior, whether it's repetitive motion, all of those children have hypoperfusion in the same area of the brain. If they have avoidance of social contacts, all of those children have hypoperfusion in a different area of the brain. Yeah. But they have this lack of blood flow. And if you have a gluten sensitivity, three out of four people have that lack of blood flow into somewhere into their brain. The, the prefrontal cortex is an area where I had the most problem. When I was eating gluten, I would try and concentrate. And I was unable to bring oxygen to the front of my brain. There was no metabolic activity there. And it had lots of other spots too. But yeah, at the time, you know, I, I also would, would do the stimming thing, which is really common uh, among people with Asperger's uh, or even some ADHD. You know, you, you're constantly counting. You're talking to someone and you're doing this. Other right. people do facial scrunching and all that. And yeah, gluten plays a big role there. And, and you can even train the brain to move blood around. But if you train yourself around the source cause of the problem versus removing the problem, it's not going to work. And you basically said 90% of people with this problem go gluten-free and a year later, they're fine. Uh, uh, 93%. Okay. So there we go. So it's a huge cure rate. Yeah. Now, how long does it take when you go gluten-free? If you actually go gluten-free, go gluten-free, I mean, eating no gluten of any sort, including hidden sources at all religiously, how long should it take for you to feel something? And how long will it take for you to reach full benefits? That's a really good question, and the answer is similar to if someone says, I want to run a 10-kilometer race in under 40 minutes. How long will it take before I can do that? You know, it depends on the individual and their history, their body style, and how much damage has been done already. But the rule of thumb for me has always been, in my office, it's always been three weeks. If you aren't noticeably better where you know you're on the right track within three weeks, Something's wrong here. And most people notice within three or four days of being gluten-free, just a few days, they notice 
I'm sleeping a little better. Oh, I'm not barking at my children the way I was before. Oh, I've got a nicer outlook on life. Oh, my joints aren't hurting the way they were. It just takes a few days usually, but a good trial period is three to four weeks of full immersion, not dip your toe in the water and reduce. That's just nonsense. It doesn't work. The immune system, you can't fool mother nature. You can't fool your immune system. There's a rule of thumb, body language never lies. And your body is talking to you. You just have to know how to ask the right question. And the questions you ask are to the immune system. Immune system, is this a problem? And how do you do that? By doing the right blood test to see. If you have elevated antibodies, your immune system's talking to you saying, this is a problem for me. So we talked a little while ago about the Swedish baby blood study where they saved the blood from, from newborns and looked at IgG. What's the deal with colostrum? Like, what is colostrum? You've written something about it. How does colostrum tie into this whole thing? If there was only one piece of nutrition that people could do for whatever ails them, there is no greater nutrition that you could use than colostrum. If that was the only thing possible, why do I say that? Because there's a whole world of study, Dave, that came out about seven years ago. I think it was at Harvard first, and then at Stanford and a few others, called enteric neuroscience. This is postdoctoral study. After you have your MD, after you have your PhD, now you go back and you study enteric neuroscience. And what is that? That's how the gut affects the brain and the central nervous system. That the gut is so crucial to, to the vast majority of health concerns that we face today. Not just gut pain, any health concern may and likely has a gut component to it. So if we hold that as the overview, then, okay, how do I help my gut? First, if the gut's inflamed, you have to reduce the inflammation. How do you do that? Stop throwing gasoline on the fire. It's not rocket science. If your immune system says, this is a problem, stop it. Don't cut it down, stop it. But then how do you put the fire out? And how do you rebuild the tissue? And how do you produce the right bacteria that are supposed to be there? There is no ingredient that comes anywhere near turning on as many genes in so many different ways as colostrum. Colostrum is the first three days of mother's breast milk. When a baby is born and mother starts breastfeeding, it's not breast milk, it's colostrum. What does colostrum do? Colostrum turns the switch on in the immune system in the gut. Say, okay, you're up and running now. Let's start to heal that permeability that's natural when you're in utero. Let's start to produce some of those good bacteria that are supposed to be here. Let's start making some enzymes and start carrying the messengers to ask for more enzymes because food's going to start coming down pretty soon. Colostrum turns the switches on in your gut for so many different functions. No, I, I mean... How do, is it okay to use cow colostrum then? Because obviously cows make a lot more milk than humans and kind of taking human colostrum is a little gross. There is, uh, now this is not my world of expertise, but uh, my friend, Dr. Andrew Keech, um, has devoted his life to this. And he tells us in his textbook, Peptide Immunotherapy, that there is no molecular difference between cow's colostrum and human colostrum. The human digestive tract of an infant, a child, or an adult can take colostrum so, from a cow. 
So, Tom, I, I don't know if, if we chatted about this much, but uh, 20% of my upgraded whey protein is pure colostrum from grass-fed cows on purpose. 20%. 20%. Yeah, it's the wow. highest percentage. Because the reason I recommend whey is for glutathione production, not as a primary protein source. And I wanted as much IgG as I could get in there. Right. And that was the best source. I used to use bovine serum albumin and switch to this new colostrum uh, for that same reason. So it, it's one of those things where hearing the science behind it's awesome. And I'd love an intro to your friend. I'll get him on the podcast. Because if you're trying to heal your gut, <laughs> you're trying to, to make all this stuff work, getting quality colostrum in the body seems like a really good idea. And the only source of it that I've been able to find is is dairy. And I, I've even tried like raw colostrum from a dairy and that was kind of gross. But the processed stuff seems to work pretty well. So I'm, I'm a fan, we'll put it that way. That's marvelous. And I've got, um, you bet, I've got a great, great source for you to carry more information to your, your audience and to look at how colostrum works with uh, whey proteins. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to try your whey protein. If you send me one of these, send me some protein. Count I'd on it. To try it. I will. I'd love to try it. Good. Um, that's way cool. I didn't think that, that you were that big of a fan. I just knew you'd written about it. And it's an area of interest because of the, the gut health. Oh, wait, wait till we talk about proline-rich polypeptides in colostrum. Oh, that, that's a whole show in itself and, and what it does for the brain. Uh, I can't wait to have you back on. We're going to do some serious biohacking. Yeah. Now we're we're running at to the end of our uh, end of our episode this time. Tell me more about the dates and the URL for the launch of your gluten free summit. I'm really excited to hear what the rest of the speakers have to say. There, um, you are a serious authority in the field. I've spent way more time with you in person because of the 40 years of Zen than the average guest on the show. So, like, I back what you say with 100. percent Like, like you know it. <laughs> so, thank you. Tell people how they can find you, where they can get more info, uh, and how they can sign up for the summit. I recommend it highly for anyone who likes this podcast. Hear what Tom has to say and the people he's brought together. Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank you. Uh, hang, out, hang around with people like you and some of our mutual friends over this last year has gotten me thinking outside my box. And I said, you know, I, I want to make a difference in the world. And I just looked at how am I going to do this? And it's, it's obvious because my world is gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. I want to move the discussion forward by five years so that by January 2014, the average listener has the level of knowledge, the level of expertise and understanding and big picture about when gluten sensitivity is a problem and how it may manifest as the average person will normally five years from now. So I want to create the catalytic event that will move that body of knowledge forward very quickly. So as a result of that, I went to the world's leaders, the experts, the researchers and the scientists in the world of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. I went to London and to England, to Oxford. I went to Oxford to interview the godfather of celiac diagnosis, Michael Marsh. It was a great, great interview. He tells us the same thing, that any inflammation in the gut is just as serious as total celiac disease, villus atrophy. You have to address it because people die. And so I, we've got it from the godfather. I interviewed uh, Dr. Fasano at Harvard, Lauren Cordain, the godfather of paleo, mm -hmm. Ye uh, Yehuda Schoenfeld, the godfather of predictive autoimmunity from Tel Aviv University in Israel. Um, I've got all of these great speakers. And then I went after some of the world's best nutritionists who are out there carrying the message of gluten-free forward. 
like uh, Melinda Dennis from Harvard, Liz Lipsky from the Institute for Functional Medicine, Noragad Gaudus, who wrote Primal Body, Primal Brain. I think that was the name yeah, of it. Good book. Uh, Jackie Carr uh, from Montreal. And because I'm in the field, I ask them the questions. I want the pearls so that the average listener has the pearls. What do I do with all of this? For example, this is a really good one for your celiac listeners. Jackie Carr in Montreal. This was a discussion. Jackie, you're a patient with celiac disease. Yes. And it's, you're a sensitive patient, meaning if you're exposed to any, it affects you. Yes. And you're a single woman. Yes. And you go to restaurants once in a while. Yes. So how do you feel safe going to restaurants and not getting contaminated food? Oh, that's easy. As soon as I get to the restaurant, I ask for the manager or the owner. And I say, hi, I'm a very sensitive celiac. To ensure there's not a 911 incident in your restaurant. And the guy's eyes always pop. Yes. Just right away. And I started laughing. I said, Jackie, that's marvelous. That's just marvelous. Everyone should do that. And the restaurants will get more on stage with this and get their people trained. But we have these little pearls from many, many, from every one of the speakers. I really went hard at that. I'm Jeffrey Smith from uh, the, the, the GMO guy talking about, we just interviewed Jeffrey last week. He's great. Yeah, he's going to come on, on uh, the Bulletproof show too. Marvelous, marvelous. So we, I put all this together and it's free. It's free to everybody. It's going to be online. The website is glutensummit.com. It'll be November 6th. Uh, we'll open the site in about a week. We'll be sending out notices to people like you, and hopefully you can let your people know. So, Tom, by the time this hits the air, this will be uh, will be definitely available. Your site will be live. So it was glutenfreesummit.com? Correct. Okay. Correct. Thank you. And uh, uh, come listen to them. Listen to the ones you want. We'll send out information every day as to who's speaking today and or tomorrow and what are some of the key points they're giving. Because... Uh, so we have 25 interviews that will air over the course of eight or nine days. So th- this this is going to be huge. And if you're listening to this, you've heard me talk about gluten before, but Tom knows what he's doing. And he went to the other guys who really know what they're doing. Uh, and of all the things you can do uh, to be more bulletproof, eliminating gluten is one of the very top ones. And, and you've heard this in different interviews where people say, well, okay, I'm lazy. What are the things to do? Number one, you've got to cut this out of your life. Because having just a little bit around isn't going to cut it. And you don't want to be walking around with your dimmer switch turned on. It's just not worth it. Right. Agreed. Fully agreed. Tom, glutenfreesummit.com. We'll get show notes up that include that link and include links to the popular, it wasn't popular science, it was whatever the science magazine. Scientific American. Okay, right. we'll get links to that at the uh, in the show notes as well, everything else we talked about, and most definitely links for your summit, glutenfreesummit.com, or check it out in the show notes, and we'll give you the link at bulletproofexec.com. Great. Tom, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. David, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you and to do some mind melt together. It's always great. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Talk to you soon. Bye. You bet. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. 
Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.